0: The views expressed in this interview are those of the individuals and do not reflect the official policy or position of the U.S. government, the Department of Defense, the U.S. Navy, or the Naval Postgraduate School. Welcome to the Trident Room, brewer of stout conversation, unfiltered and on tap. On today's episode, the Trident Room host James Riley sits down to talk history with Bill Thiessen. Tell me about
1: yourself. So I'm one of the two area historians for the Coast Guard, which means I'm located on the East Coast in the Hampton Roads part of Virginia, Southeast Virginia. And uh, I have a colleague who's located in San Francisco who is the Pacific Area historian. And then we both report to the historian's office, chief historian at headquarters. So there's me, PAC area, and then the chief and deputy historians at headquarters. And uh, I've been doing this for over 15 years. I've been here for over 15 years. Um, I've been uh, involved in maritime history for probably 35 years, and uh, 15 of those were Coast Guard. I do a little bit of everything underwater archaeology, uh, maritime museums. I'm the advisor for the National Maritime, uh, National Coast Guard Museum uh, for their exhibits and uh, oral histories programs and presentations and then I have a weekly blog series which you may be familiar with called the long blue line yeah and uh, we're on our 300th essay this week awesome and we do every aspect of Coast Guard or Coast Guard related maritime history from 1790 to present day. a lot of it's combat related a lot of it's uh, the different statutory missions of the Coast Guard lot Of its predecessor mission, uh, agency missions such as lighthouse service, revenue cutter service, um, marine safety, which was Bureau of uh, Navigation Inspection, uh, as well as, um, well, virtually any other mission from environmental protection to living marine resources, um, uh, Homeland Security is our huge mission right now, of course, since 9 11. Yes, yes, so. Definitely a lot of variety, and in fact I would argue that the Coast Guard has a far broader, richer history and heritage than any other military uh, agency in the U.S., and it's the oldest continuous uh, sea service in the United States as well since 1790.
0: Yeah, Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton, putting the Revenue revenue Cutter Service out there, which uh, a surprising thing is we do have a a fair amount of combat history, um, which people don't normally think of the Coast Guard um and I think one of the neat ways that we intersect with the other services is our time in world war ii and and then uh picked a specific example of uh, uh douglas Monroe who we'll be talking about who ended up uh, earning the Medal of honor so
1: when World war Ii began uh, the only service that really had any experience with small boat operations and uh Working uh, inshore with uh, with watercraft was the Coast Guard. So uh, the Coast Guard really became the nucleus around which the Navy's amphibious landing uh, capability formed. Uh, we were the first drivers, first coxswains for a lot of the landing craft, and in many cases were the ones that taught the Navy and the Army had its own landing craft as well how to do how to do that. Um, So those types of training took place. Uh, Coast Guard was involved with um, landing craft training in New Orleans, because obviously that's where the landing craft were built at Higgins. And so a lot of the coxswains uh, got specialized training there. And then uh, a lot of the actual uh, marine landing operations were uh, taking place either down where Camp is located today, and that's where the basis for um, the Marine uh, base down Camp Lejeune is is World War II base, and the Coast Guard was heavily uh, involved in those landing training operations. There was also training around uh, Solomon Island in Maryland, up in the uh, Chesapeake Bay, um, and so there was a lot of amphibious uh, landing training taking place there as well, which is kind of ironic because the training took place uh, around Solomon Island, and then the actual operations took place at the Solomon Islands in the Pacific. But um, Douglas Monroe, and uh, he was extremely close to another friend who both became, uh, who enlisted at the same time from Washington State, and that was uh, Ray Evans. So they're both enlisted, uh, they became signalmen and served for um, a couple of years actually before the war started. And uh, they were referred to as the Gold Dust Twins just because they were. I guess lucky, um, but they were always attached to the hip, really good friends, and, uh, so when World War II began, they both were assigned to, uh, attack an attack transport, and that was a Hunter Liggett, uh, which was, uh, named for, a uh, uh, Army General, I believe. In any case, it was Coast Guard manned. Um, during the war, a lot of the, uh, ships of various kinds anything from uh, patrol boats up to transports and including small warships were manned entirely by coast guard personnel i'd say maybe 15 percent of the entire fleet could have been uh, coast guard manned destroyer escorts patrol frigates on down to smaller boats but uh, a lot of the transports were manned by coasties uh in total the uh Number of Coast Guardsmen that served in World War II is about a quarter of a million. Uh, and at any given time, the maximum amount was probably about 170,000. Uh, this included uh, women, uh, all minorities, and uh, as well as active duty, and then a huge reserve component that was uh, drawn up in World War II. But both Monroe and Evans were active duty. They'd enlisted, I believe, in 1939, and they were actually part of the uh, regular uh, force. <clears throat> so a little backstory on uh, Guadalcanal, Guadalcanal. As you may know, it took place in the summer of 1942. And uh, one other battle I'll mention, which was not related to the Coast Guard so much, was the Battle of Midway. It took place in June of, of that year, June and in August for Guadalcanal. And uh, if you lived back in those days, at first you thought, uh, perhaps, uh, you were uh, you would have been if you were an American back uh, leading up to the uh, World War II. You would have been surprised by the amount of territory that the Empire of Japan was capturing. It was uh, a juggernaut that virtually nobody could oppose. Certainly, none of the uh, Asian countries at that time, China, um, and it captured large swaths of Southeast Asia, Korea, Vietnam, all the way down to. Uh, Malaysia and Singapore. So it was a huge part of the earth was captured and dominated by uh, the Japanese. And obviously Pearl Harbor was a huge shock to uh, American citizens. It was a, it was a strategic surprise. Uh, the Japanese not even declared war before the, the actual attack. So it was by most, I think a lot of military strategists knew it was coming, but the American public had no idea. So uh, that's kind of giving you the backstory of what, what was going on at the time. Now the, uh, the Battle of Midway, just to get back to that briefly, was a huge strategic success for the, uh, for the US Navy. But it was, it was the Navy's victory. There were no other, um, outside of Marines that might have been on board the ships, there were no other American uh, military forces involved in that great victory. Um, so that spelled a kind of a turning point in the naval war of the Pacific, which of course dragged on for another over three years. But I would say the uh, pivotal battle of World War II was Guadalcanal, and that's not only because um, the Navy was obviously uh, heavily involved, but also all other uh, parts of the military were involved too. The Coast Guard was involved. Obviously the Marine Corps was involved because they sent in the first troops with the 1st Marine Division and then um, later on the um, Army actually took over that campaign after the 1st Division was relieved um, in uh, around the 1943 early 1943 so it was an all-out all forces all hands on deck uh, battle and when the when we went into that battle in August of 1942 the japanese had pretty much hit their high tide mark they had uh, occupied captured and occupied the furthest reaches of their uh, empire at that point uh solomon islands being the farthest south that they had stretched and of course they were building an airfield on the island of Guadalcanal, and that was known by allied forces and so that's why Nimitz and other strategic planners decided to use that as uh, the first test of US forces, uh, amphibious forces. There were two reasons. One was that airstrip uh, being built by the Japanese could attack uh, supply lines between um, Australia and uh, other parts of the South Pacific. And uh, also because the Japanese have stretched their supply lines pretty far to get all the way down to Guadalcanal, which is kind of the southern part of the Solomons. So um, there was a a watchtower was the name of the uh, operation, it was assembled in New Zealand and uh, strangely enough, I mean, uh, the 1st Marine Division was shipped down there and all kinds of other uh, assets and uh, and men and personnel. the attack on Guadalcanal was uh, a pr- pretty big surprise to the Japanese. They didn't uh, had no idea that, uh, that uh, Allied forces were going to focus on that target. So, in August 7th, it's exactly eight months after Pearl Harbor, the uh, campaign took place, started off, and uh, the uh, Coast Guard uh, actually supported not only through its transports, but also. The uh, coxswains and landing craft drivers were influential in landing troops. And uh, most people focus on the island of Guadalcanal, but there were two branches to that invasion. One was uh, the force called X-Ray, the other one was Yoke, and I believe X-Ray was the one that was directed at Tulagi, which was actually the far better defended and fortified of the two. Uh, Tulagi was on the other side of Iron Bottom Sound from the island of Guala Canal where the airstrip was, but it was also kind of the headquarters for local operations for the Japanese. Airstrip was being built, but it was not really fortified or manned with troops so much as Tulagi was. So, uh, Coast Guard coxswains were involved in landing troops. Many of them uh, received the Silver Star for landing troops against a heavily defended island, uh, which uh, kind of was a taste of what was to come uh, not only would we call a canal, but with a bunch of other island hopping campaigns.
0: And they were driving the Higgins boats at this time.
1: They were, um, <laughs> and in fact, for anybody who's a real geek about landing craft, the original Higgins cra- Higgins boats didn't really have a ramp on them. They were blunt nosed with two uh, machine gun tubs in the front, and then the Marines were actually expected to debark off the sides
0: of the landing craft. Those are pretty high sides. That's a lot of freeboard that they got to climb up over, right?
1: Right, yeah. And part of the problem was that if you jump over to the side, even if the bow is grounded, you never know how deep that water is. But um, I would say by 1943, you're seeing a lot more of the landing craft that most people associate with World War II, with D-Day, with the armored ramp that would uh, deploy off off the bow. And that was actually just a uh, modified version of the one I'm telling you about, which was the blunt bowed one. They just took the bow off, took the machine gun tubs off, and put a ramp on there. And they could, by doing that, they not only could have troops deploy right onto the beach, but they could carry a jeep or other uh, shore-based assets.
0: It's so funny. Yeah, it makes sense, you know, now looking back at it, like, oh yeah, of course you'd have a ramp at the front of a landing craft, but that was also new um yeah that's yeah
1: well, the technology in early World War II was developed from lessons learned in World War One mm-hmm. so if you look at 1941 1942 and then you compare it to what we had in 1945 it's just a uh, totally different technology because by 1943 a lot of that technology was battle tested and uh, they were starting to build uh, far more effective uh ships like uh LSTs were developed by about 43, and uh, and if you look at the uh, assets that were used in Guadalcanal, they had something called an APD, and what it was was a fast transport. And <laughs> what they did was they took a bunch of you know there a bunch of surplus uh, four-stacker destroyers from World War One, so they took out the engine spaces for uh, for two of the stacks, and they built in uh, accommodations for a marine unit. Inside this old four stacker, and then they put four landing craft on, on davits on either side of that APD, and that was what they used for uh, fast deployment of troops in amphibious operations for the first year or two. And they actually were pretty effective. And in yeah. fact, in the uh, operation against Tel that I just mentioned uh, in August 1942, they used APDs, and uh, Coast Guardsmen were the uh, coxswains on those APDs. So, for example, the first uh, recipients of the Silver Star in the Coast Guard were four coxswains that deployed from an APD and delivered Marines
0: to uh, the Loggy
1: under heavy fire.
0: So, where is the coxswain now on this on on a Higgins boat? Where are they normally positioned, and what what are they working with basically?
1: So, uh, coxswains were
0: actually in a very vulnerable position
1: on the uh, on the landing craft. Um, in the uh, first iteration I just told you about, the first Higgins boats, you had men that were actually on the bow manning uh, 30 caliber Lewis guns, and then you had somebody in the aft that was operating the boat. Uh, but in general, the uh, landing craft drivers had to sit up, stand upright with a wheel right in front of them. So basically, they were exposed from the waist up to enemy snipers, enemy fire. And there were a lot of uh, casualties as a result of that. So that was one reason why these uh, coxswains that uh, uh, deployed troops in Tulagi were given these uh, silver stars for the first time in our history, Coast Guard history. Actually awarded by Chester Nimitz himself. So uh, because they were exposing themselves to enemy fire to deliver the Marines to the uh, to the beachfront in Tulagi. Now the the uh, um, the active Guadalcanal side. Which is far more famous than Tulagi. That's where Monroe was deployed. He actually did drive uh, Higgins' boats in Tulagi first uh, to deploy Marines there, but then he was switched over to uh, to Guadalcanal, and um, most of the Coast Guard personnel that were assigned to Guadalcanal came from the Hunter Liggett, which I mentioned before is an attack transport, um, and it's the uh, Coasties that were deployed to Guadalcanal were the first ones to command and staff a naval operating base that was operated primarily by the Coast Guard. And what happened was um, they did some training for this operation uh, in the Fiji Islands before they attacked Guadalcanal. And they realized in that training op from, from lessons learned that they really needed to have a boat pool that was assigned. That was assigned to shore uh, to transport uh, personnel, equipment, supplies, ammunition, all the, all the above from transports to the shoreline, because there was no there was no port facilities. Never was a port facility in Guadalcanal. It's a beach,
0: and it.
1: so they needed to have lots of landing craft. To take the supplies off the, uh, from derricks off the transports and and then ship them into the beach. And I think the boat pool, Naval Operating Base run by the Coast Guard, had probably about 40 40 small boats of various kinds. They had the Higgins boats. They also had uh, the larger uh, LCTs, I think, that could deliver a small tank. Um, They call it a tank lighter. And then, they might have had some They had some other small craft there, but it was primarily um, Allied landing craft. And they would just anchor them offshore, just like you would uh, a mooring for a small boat, and then uh, go out and use them as needed. And they performed this Naval Operating Base, where Monroe was, and where Ray Evans served as well, uh, was staffed primarily by Coasties, and they had a variety of different missions that they ran at the beginning of the Guadalcanal campaign. And in fact, they were considered to be a part of the 1st Marine Division because they provided for the Marines in so many strategic ways. So when they got the Presidential Unit Citation, the 1st Division, 1st Marine Division, there's a little uh, word attached, 1st Marine Division reinforced. And the reinforced units were the the Coast Guard units that served in this naval operating base to support the Marines. Wow. And Mun- Monroe was part of that. Evans was part of that. And it was commanded by a lieutenant commander, a Coast Guard lieutenant commander named Dexter, Point Dexter. Um, so those were some of the men. There were some Navy uh, personnel that were also involved in that. And in general, that operating base was probably one of the most honored uh operations in, in, uh, in the service history.
0: Wow. How cool. That's if that... you look
1: at the number of medals that were doled out for that unit, it was a medal of honor, two Navy crosses, uh, tons of purple hearts, bronze stars, uh, Navy commendations. Um, so it was, um, I would say there's one other operation that took place in World War One that might be considered, um, greater honored by number of medals but but not by much
0: yeah i, I mean i guess i'm so we we do spend some time um uh, for any of this strategy and war guys uh one of the the navy war college classes that you potentially do here they do talk about um this a lot and i mean i guess that's what happens it, i mean uh, uh it was very tough i don't you know no no casting blame or anything but that unit was uh it was very hard to support that unit, uh, considering the our, our how advanced our logistics were at that point, as far as uh, conducting amphibious uh, assaults. So, yeah, I mean, it's surprising, but it then then makes sense, and uh, but neat to hear the the Coast Guard uh, uh, role in that. So, I guess, um, yeah, take me through take me through the day for for um, when uh, Douglas Monroe uh, uh, earned his. Uh, Medal of Honor.
1: Sure. So, uh, Chesty Puller. I don't know if you're familiar with that name or not, but I've know. heard
0: it around. I've heard it around. Okay, uh, <laughs> sure I've heard it around
1: there a lot. Uh, any case, he was in charge of uh, a regiment of the Marines, and uh, so they were they were had set up a defensive perimeter. Uh, around Henderson field uh, airstrip that the Japanese were building, but it had been turned into a marine airfield and uh, So what Puller wanted to do I uh, was a colonel at the time He wanted to circle around behind enemy lines and try to attack the Japanese from behind uh, rather than trying to uh, Force w- their way through the uh, enemy lines uh, around uh, Henderson field so um, what they devised was to deliver using these landing craft from the Naval Operating Base, they called it Cactus, uh, NOB Cactus was the name of the, the unit there, the Coast Guard manned NOB. And uh, so they devised in late September to use NOB Cactus uh, landing craft to deliver the Marines around uh, the backside of the uh, Japanese lines. And Point Cruise was the Location that they decided upon with Chesty Puller Chesty Puller was Colonel Puller was actually out on board a Navy destroyer Trying to kind of direct things from the water while his officers and men uh, deployed on the beach and um, Somehow the uh, the Japanese either got wind of or were prepared for this uh, amphibious landing by the the marine uh, battalion there and it was on September 27th, and so um, they encountered heavy fire. Um, a lot of the Japanese used what they called knee mortars. Uh, I think they had small artillery units too, as well as uh, you know uh, machine guns and, and that sort of thing. And basically, were pushing the Marines back to uh, to the water after they had uh, they had tried to get inland as far as they could, but they were suffering too many casualties to to be effective. So. Uh, They decided that they needed to be evacuated, Um, and so after the boats got back to the Naval Operating Base, they would actually delivered the troops, Uh, Dwight Dexter came out and asked Monroe, uh, you know, would you be willing to lead a flotilla of our landing craft back over there to evacuate the troops, and uh, Monroe's answer was, hell yes, (laughs) so uh, he and Ray Evans uh, were in charge of of these landing craft, and uh, there were quite a few that went back to pick up the Marines. They had some tank lighters, some other uh, landing craft they used. The one that uh, Monroe was on board was, again, one of these early versions of the Higgins boat. It had two gun tubs in the front, snub nose bow, and uh, Monroe and the others thought, well, it'd be great to have machine gun fire to cover the um, redeployment of the Marines back onto the landing craft. So uh Monroe's landing craft was going to operate as kind of a machine gun, floating machine gun nest to cover their
0: Got it. Uh, um, getting back. At this point, I mean they're they're basically cornered. They are they're fighting into the water right now. That's right.
1: Yeah. So yeah. in fact these older versions of Higgins boat were actually pretty effective because they had two thirty caliber machine guns fitted on the front that they could use for covering fire. the Marines get back on the uh, landing craft. So, um, there were actually a number of, not only Coast Guard, but like I said, there were some mixed crews with Navy personnel in as well. I don't know if you're ever familiar with, I'm sure you can talk to your Navy buddies about the Samuel Roberts, which was a destroyer escort that uh, was very heroic in the Battle of Lady Gulf and was sunk, but actually helped to fend off the uh, Yamato and some other ships before it was sunk. Well, it was named for uh, one of the Navy personnel that was shot and killed in this uh, amphibious operation, Samuel B. Roberts. Um, So in any case, uh, like I said, there's not a lot of cover in these amphibious landing craft. And the uh, Marines uh, got back on board the uh, landing craft. I think they suffered quite a few casualties, but I think they evacuated all of their wounded, they did, and uh, were able to get back onto these landing craft with covering fire from Monroe and his um, uh, Higgins boat. So uh, there was one last tank lighter uh, that was stuck. It was grounded on a sandbar, and um, they had to be covered while uh, before uh, Know, they had to be evacuated before everybody was, was safely back on board these boats. And, uh, Monroe volunteered to uh, stay back with his Higgins boat to provide the covering fire. And, uh, that's when he was hit in the neck. And, uh, Evans was on board that Higgins boat at the time, Ray Evans. And, uh, so the, the, uh, legend goes that, uh, after he's hit the neck, it was a fatal uh, mortal wound. Um, Ray Evans noticed that he'd been hit, uh, that Monroe had been hit by fire, uh, sniper fire. So he went went up to the front to see if he was okay. And according to the uh, the legend, that's when uh, uh, Monroe asked Evans, did they get off? And Evans said, yes, they did. And that's when uh, Monroe passed away uh in Evans's arms there and they successfully uh redeployed back to the uh to the naval operating base which was behind allied lines and safe from uh, enemy attack and he was later see i don't know if you're aware of this or not but the uh coast guard cannot award the, the medal of honor it can't award any of the navy medals those all have mm-hmm. to be awarded or recommended by other military forces. Otherwise, I'm sure we'd have a ton of medal of honor medals, but uh, we can't. So <laughs> he was recommended by the Marines. Uh, in fact, I think it might have a Chesty Puller for his Medal of Honor, uh, which he received obviously posthumously later on in the war.
0: Yeah, incredible, and yeah, in- incredible. You know, Kieran, you know that those are his last words. Uh, you know, no concern for himself, which, you know, is kind of emblematic of of Medal of Honor recipients. But yeah,
1: yeah. yeah he came from a family that was uh, very uh, military oriented. I don't know if you're familiar with the story, but his mother uh, became a SPAR officer. Uh, Edith Monroe was a lieutenant in SPARS.
0: I I and actually if you could explain what SPARS are, I'm sure I'm uh, that's a that's a yeah. Uh, new thing for.
1: Yeah, so during the war, the uh, um, there were a lot of groups that were uh, enlisted that had never been enlisted before. Um, we had a pretty diverse group, uh, minority-wise, and uh, about 12,000 women served in the uh, Coast Guard, and this the uh, unit, the Women's Reserve, was called the SPARS, uh, which was an acronym for Separate, Parade, It's Always Ready. And it was equivalent to the WAVES or the WACS or any of the women's reserve units that were in other military branches. Um, Officers were trained at the academy and uh, there were uh, training centers for enlisted spars on both coasts. But um, I believe that, yeah, Edith Monroe was actually from Canada originally and uh, uh, migrated to uh, Washington State. That's where uh, um, Douglas Monroe was raised. And so uh, she had a, a you know very uh, strong uh, patriotic aspect to her, and you can tell obviously that Douglas Monroe was raised pretty well because he was he was a you know a through and through Coast Guardsman, and uh, anything he was asked to do, he was enthusiastic to take it on, just like he did the rescue operations
0: for the Marines at Point Cruz. Oh, cool! That's yeah. Um... Any, any, like, retrospective stuff, any uh, things afterward where he was recognized uh, or, um, you know, further research done on him or,
1: yeah. Well, uh, let's see. Uh, I talked about uh, Samuel Robert, Roberts having a destroyer rescue named after him. And uh, Ray Evans has a fast response cutter that's named for him. Here in the Coast Guard, and then of course Monroe had ships named for him uh, during World War II, and ever since then, uh, the ships that were named for him World War II were Navy uh, vessels, and then uh, we've had cutters named for him. I don't know for the past uh, since 378, or so perhaps earlier than that. Uh, so he's been honored, uh, you know, for generations in our service, and he's also been honored by. The Marines for what he did for them, and he's been honored by the Navy as namesake for uh, some of their vessels too. But I think he's really an exemplar for what the uh, a true blue service member can do. And he's been held up as an example for many of them listed There's monuments and memorials to him at the training center in Cape May and there's also the Monroe building at headquarters uh, with his statue and uh, um, I think if you look back in history and I know uh, with all due respect uh, a lot of the history is written by the officers and uh, so you see the officers get a lot more credit than the enlisted people do and only now I think in uh, recent times are we really granting that a lot of these enlisted heroes there do, due uh they're due but uh monroe was honored early on and i think he was kind of a um an exemplar for a lot of uh coast guard enlisted personnel especially during world war ii uh, and i have to say that you know guadalcanal was probably one of the first times that uh, now, like I said, the U.S. went f- head-to-head with uh, combat units, of, experienced combat units of the uh, of the Japanese, and there were a lot of heroes in that campaign. Uh, if there was one campaign, like I said before, that was pivotal in the Pacific War and World War II, it was Guadalcanal. I think most experts and historians would definitely agree on that, and so um, that's when you see Navy crosses, silver stars, and the Medal of Honor uh, that are given to uh, to these unit, and the Presidential Unit Citation to the First Division, uh, which includes the Coast Guard. So, um, and that these stories went back to the American public uh, as soon as possible, even sometimes beyond classified status, because the. Uh, American public needed some heroes, you know, all they've been hearing about was the Japanese winning this battle and that battle and conquering this nation and that nation, and so, um, with Guadalcanal, uh, not only the Coast Guard, but obviously the other service branches as well, you see a lot of, uh, honored heroes, uh, John Basilone, if you ever, uh, heard of him with the, uh, Marine Corps, mm-hmm. uh, Medal of Honor recipient, and, uh, and of course he was, uh, suggested by Chesty Puller as well, so, um, a lot of uh, common threads there about that particular battle, the Coast Guardsmen that served there, Monroe and what he did. And, uh, and I think Guadalcanal and Monroe and, and the others that served with the Coast Guard there really built a bond with the Marine Corps that lasted throughout the rest of the war. You know, when the Marine Corps uh, Marines landed on beaches in the South Pacific, a lot of times, the last friendly face they might see was a Coast Guardman like Monroe, um, and uh, and I think that Monroe, like uh, most of the other Coast Guard coxswains, was very concerned and and uh, felt very uh, sensitive about ensuring that the Marines were uh, were given the best chance possible whenever they had to deploy and doing the best job possible. Um, so I, I think it was a. Uh, uh, relationship that was forged early at Guadalcanal and went all the way up through uh, Okinawa uh, and the other uh, ferocious campaigns that took place, uh, Iwo Jima, Saipan. The Coast Guard was involved in virtually all those landings, Philippines. So uh, it was it was the beginning of a, of a long relationship, and I think it lasts today, in some respects too, um, between the Marine Corps and the Coast Guard. I
0: think so too. I think so. I. I uh... In, in my experience it definitely has and yeah and it's neat to hear the history behind that so yeah there's an
1: iconic photograph if you get a chance you can just look it up on google uh just type in guam marines and coast guard image you know what i'm talking about there's an image of a couple of of uh battle tested marines one of them doesn't even have a shirt on and they're holding up a sign the coast guard got us here and we intend to stay or something like that but it was a it was a nice uh homage to the uh coast guardsmen that uh that got the uh, marines where they were and and helped evacuate wounded and bring in supplies and ammunition and medical supplies and a lot of times the coast guard were uh, beach masters for a lot of these amphibious operations and so they were there on the beaches as well to help out the marines
0: well yeah like you said i mean that uh you know it's it's it was at a time when we were still learning all this stuff and, and really the, the Coast Guard were the only ones who had done anything close to that up until this point with surfboats and you know managing ports and waterways so it, it does it follows it makes sense but uh, you know still surprising to hear and I'm glad we can get the story out.
1: Yeah and in fact just to wrap it up um, Guadalcanal is actually the scene of the worst uh, casualty events in uh, in the war. Uh, For a Coast Guard they lost 200 men when the serpents blew up offshore there in 1945 Really? And in fact, there's the serpents monument at uh, Arlington National Cemetery Where the whatever remains were left were brought back and buried at Arlington it was an ammo ship and it was being loaded with depth charges and uh, It's not certain exactly what uh, blew it up at this point, but it basically vaporized Wow. uh due to all the uh, ammunition on board with the loss of 199 coast Guardsmen, i think only two that were actually on board the ship survived they were blown off uh, the bow uh, but everybody else that was on board the ship uh was killed they were almost all coast guardsmen or a few army stevedore types that's it wow so goa canal has got a lot of uh a lot of meaning to uh, the coast guard for a variety of reasons most Most importantly, Monroe, of course, but uh, all the things that the Coast Guard did there and experienced there.
0: Well, hey, thank you so much. This was great. Yeah. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us in the Trident Room. For more information about today's guests and topics, please visit the show notes. The Trident Room has been brought to you by the Naval Postgraduate School Alumni Association and Foundation. For questions, comments, and suggestions, please email us at Trident Room at nps.edu and find us online at NPS.edu slash trident room.